Hey, it's Jen. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly developing and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. For the latest news, tune into your public radio station and follow updates at npr.org. After weeks of tension between Ukraine, Russia, and the West, things seem to have quickly bubbled over. Last night, Russian President Vladimir Putin ordered his defense ministry to send troops into two separatist regions in eastern Ukraine. The forces have been ordered to, quote, fulfill peacekeeping functions, end quote. But the move has set off a wave of international condemnation and anxiety over whether we're seeing the start of a full-scale invasion. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken ordered all State Department personnel in Kyiv to evacuate to Poland for the night. Australia also temporarily closed its embassy in Kyiv. We'll take a closer look at the situation and talk about where it goes next after the break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. A reminder to have your questions answered on future topics, or just to let us know what you think. Tweet us at 1A. Support for NPR and the following message come from BetterHelp, offering online counseling. BetterHelp therapist Hesu Jo knows that lockdown has been hard on us as humans. We as people are hardwired to connect with others, which is why this whole time is so difficult. The connection that happens between people can be very powerful and how healing it can be to have a healthy relationship with someone. To get matched with a counselor within 48 hours and save 10%, go to betterhelp.com slash 1A. Support for NPR and the following message come from BetterHelp, offering online counseling. BetterHelp therapist Hesu Jo knows that lockdown has been hard on us as humans. We as people are hardwired to connect with others, which is why this whole time is so difficult. The connection that happens between people can be very powerful, and how healing it can be to have a healthy relationship with someone. To get matched with a counselor within 48 hours and save 10%, go to betterhelp.com slash 1A. Over this last year and a half, the world's been through a lot. So on this season of the StoryCorps podcast, we'll hear stories reminding us that even when times are hard, we can still begin again. Listen to our new season wherever you get your podcasts. We're discussing the situation in Ukraine. Here to tell us more is Stephen Pfeiffer. He was U.S. ambassador to Ukraine from 1998 to 2000. Now he's a William Perry Fellow at Stanford and a non-resident senior fellow at Brookings. Stephen, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Also with us, reporter Terrell Germain Starr. He's a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. He also hosts the Black Diplomats podcast, and he joins us from Ukraine. Terrell, thanks for making time for us. So, Stephen, this was all preceded by a speech from Russian President Vladimir Putin. In it, he argued Ukraine had always been part of Russia. Here he is speaking through an interpreter. Why did we have to transfer the rights to the territories that have been historically part of the Russian Empire? And they've received even statues of the national territorial units. Why? Why? Again, I am asking you, why? Did we have to be so generous? Even some ardent nationalists would not even dream of this. And then even give those republics the right to leave this union without any terms and conditions. Stephen, what are the implications of this argument? Well, I think, first of all, 
Vladimir Putin has a very distorted view of history, uh, uh, a view that most historians would not agree with at all. Uh, but I think for Mr. Putin, when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, it was very hard for him to reconcile with the loss of Ukraine. Uh, and he seems to be now uh, um, taking steps to change that. Now, Putin also recognized two specific regions as, quote, independent states. Tell us more about the so-called Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics. Yes, well, these are two breakaway regions um, in the eastern part of Ukraine. Uh, after you, Russia illegally seized Crimea in 2014, the Russians instigated uh, uh, separatist actions in those two areas. Uh, they have been basically the subject of fighting uh, for eight years now. Some 14,000 Ukrainians have died in that fighting. And last night, what uh, Mr. Putin did was he recognized these two little statelets as independent countries. Uh, one thing of concern, though, is that the so-called Donetsk People's Republic and so-called Luhansk People's Republic, they were about 35% of the total territory of the uh, Luhansk and Donetsk oblasts of Ukraine. And there are some signals out of Moscow that when uh, Mr. Putin recognized them, he recognized them not just the territory that they currently occupy, but also territory which is still held by Ukrainian forces. So that bears very close watching. Terrell, you're currently in Ukraine, where it's 5 o'clock in the evening. What have your last 24 hours been like? Well, people have, um, you know, people are worried about their parents or their loved ones in Donbass and Luhansk, basically, because there is a section of Donbass that is not controlled by Russian troops. And the fear is that Russia will come in and take over that entire area. And so, People are, um, there was a little bit of anxiousness, but here in Kiev, for example, people are very calm. People, there's no panic. The supermarkets are full. There are no long lines for gas. And so everybody is pretty much resolute, but we're pretty, but but people generally are, are frustrated with the West because Russia has invaded. But from the West standpoint, how do they define invasion? Do they define it by going beyond Donbass and Luhansk? Do they define it with a separation of Kiev? What is it? Because it, it, there's just a lot of gray area there, and people here don't understand what that what what the red line is for for Washington or Brussels. And and how is this for people in Kiev? How is this connecting to the annexation of Crimea? Because it's important to note that Ukraine has essentially been in conflict with Russia for the last eight years. Right. So they are recognized. So so what what Putin is calling this is a recognition of. Luhansk and Donbass as sovereign nations, they're not necessarily calling it an annexation, which essentially, functionally, it is, right? But, you know, it's just a play of Putin's colonial uh, playbook, and they are looking at this as a matter of their sovereignty not being respected, but also with the lack of sanctions or, or stiff sanctions taking place. Um, their sentiment that even the West, in many respects, are not fully respecting the sovereignty of their territories um, and, and just essentially have given up on recognizing Luhansk and Donbass as Ukraine because Russia has already taken them and has so much military control over those areas. Well, Russia is arguing that Kyiv must, quote, immediately halt military action, end quote. And to be clear, there's no evidence Ukraine is the aggressor here. But Terrell, how is that strategy being received by people in Ukraine? 
Well, right now, you know, Ukrainians are generally, uh, their attitude is very simple. We have the right to defend our territory, our land. And so even though Putin has recognized the annexation, you know, has recognized uh, Luhansk and Donbass as independent, that doesn't mean that the Ukrainians are not going to fight. You know, so we we basically expect there to be massive, uh, a very bloody battle for that region. They're not going to give it up easily. And so when you think about the peacekeeper question, uh, it, it really is inconsequential in the sense that, yes, Ukraine does have a right to do that. But what they, they wouldn't just be fighting Russian backed rebels. They would be fighting the Russian military. And so the, the and there's a major power difference between Ukraine and Russia. It's not as though we were America and some country, let's say Canada, were to say we're going to take over North Dakota or, or another state and then we'll be able to fend them off. Ukraine, if they had the capacity to send or, or the military might to send in their own um, troops to secure that land, they would have done that. So it's, it's so it's a simply a matter of just being outmatched militarily. Well, early Tuesday morning, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky gave a televised address to his country. The speech was in Ukrainian, but a transcript with an English translation was provided. He says the war against us is being systematically waged on all fronts. On the military one, they increase the contingent around the border. On the diplomatic one, they are trying to deprive us of the right to determine our own foreign policy course. On the energy one, they limit the supply of gas, electricity and coal. On the information one, they seek to spread panic among citizens and investors through the media. But our state today is stronger than ever. What should we make of this response from Zelensky, Stephen? Um, he is trying to rally the Ukrainian people, and I actually think he's done a fairly good job. You know, bear in mind, um, you know, he has an army, but you know, the Russian army overmatches his military. Uh, I think there is considerable evidence that the Russians prepare, are prepared to launch a major military action against Ukraine in the coming days, above and beyond what they've done yesterday by moving the Russian military overtly into the uh, two statelets. Uh, so he is trying to keep things calm but also project what I think is an attitude in Ukraine, which is they are prepared to defend themselves against Russia. Briefly, uh, I I know we need to let you go, Terrell, but I just want to know what you'll be watching in the days ahead while you're in Ukraine. Well, I'll be watching how um, the military, public military groups, even just regular citizens are fending for a possible uh, further encroachment into Ukrainian soil. Um, This Saturday, in fact, I'm going to... A, uh, a field training in which civilians are bracing on how to take care of each other during war. Um, here, for example, in um, on, on Facebook, on, on Ukrainian Facebook, you'll see mothers, you see parents um, putting stickers on their children's clothing so that if a bomb, for example, were to hit them and they were, need, you know, they would strike them and they would need blood, then the um, hospital would know their blood type. Hmm. And so people are bracing for the very worst that can happen here right now. And I'll be paying very close attention to what the locals here are doing to protect themselves and to fight back. That's Terrell Germain Starr. He hosts the Black Diplomats podcast, and he's a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Terrell, thanks for being here. And let's bring in two more guests. Yuri Garotnichenko is a professor of economics at UC Berkeley. He's also written extensively on the Russian invasion of Crimea, and he's a Ukrainian citizen. Yuri, welcome to the program. Thank you. Also with us is Hanna Shellist, the Director of Security Programs at the Foreign Policy Council's Ukrainian Prison. She's also the Editor-in-Chief of UA, Ukraine Analytica, and she joins us from Ukraine. Hanna, welcome back to the program. 
Good evening. Now, this isn't the first time Russia has moved into a region of Ukraine and cited defending Russian citizens as the motivation. Here's Russia's ambassador to the European Union speaking to Euronews in 2014. And this is from right after Russian troops moved into several airports in the region and Russia denied it was happening. The United States being in the tradition of interfering in in other countries and sending troops overseas, uh, maybe acting according to their own uh, mentality, I would say. But this is not uh, a case of Russian interference. Uh, actually, many people in Russia are asking questions. Why is the Russian government uh, keeping such a low profile? Yuri, how does what's happening now echo what we saw in 2014 with Crimea? Well, you know, there are many similarities that the Russian government is lying. Uh, they were saying that the Russian troops are not in the Crimea. They ended up there. And uh, eventually the Russian Federation annexed the Crimea. Um, now the difference is that uh, the Russian government is not hiding anymore. They openly have their troops in the Donbass and Luhansk. Um, so... It is for the world to see that the Russia flexes muscles now and intimidates everybody, not just Ukraine, but many other countries in the region and the rest of the world. Hanna, that invasion came after mass protests in Ukraine toppled a pro-Moscow president. How is anxiety over waning Russian dominance fueling Putin's moves in that region? Let's be honest, what's happened uh, had the uh, copy-paste from the even earlier events. If you remember August 2008 in Georgia and what been happening yesterday here in Moscow about Ukraine, it's just like a copy-pasting uh, with the statements, with the same text of the uh, security agreements, with the same uh, uh, logic of events to protect uh, so-called Russian citizens, uh, even that most of these Russian citizens receive their passports illegally and many of them being imposed. That's why what's been happening yesterday definitely uh, psychologically many being prepared, uh, but at the same time shocked with the surreal picture and the statements of the Russian president. And uh, till the very end, it was the hope that even if the Russian parliament would request recognition, but the Russian president decides not to go that far and to violate the international law even more. We got this question from Guy Fisher in Florida. He emails, how does Ukraine still have Soviet-era nuclear weapons? Weren't they promised protection to denuclearize? Hannah, what can you tell him? No, in 1994, Ukraine uh, signed all the documents and rejected the third biggest nuclear arsenal in the world. And all nuclear uh, missiles being removed from the Ukrainian territory, from the bases, and returned to the territory of the Russian Federation. Um, as a result, Ukraine being promised the uh, uh, guarantees for its territorial integrity and sovereignty, the countries UK, US and Russia signed a so-called Budapest Memorandum where uh, they said that they would never use forces against Ukraine. So as you can imagine, everything that had been signed and promised in 1994 had been uh, uh, just violated by the Russian action since uh, 2014. As a result, all Ukraine received is just implementation of one point from that Budapest Memorandum. Consultations can be called to discuss the issues. UK and US are the constant consultations from the very first day of the crisis. Well, Stephen, last night the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. accused Russia of making a claim on all territories that were formerly part of the Soviet Union. Have we seen any indication that Russia will try this strategy in other former Soviet states? 
Well, the Russians have already tried this. I mean, Russian forces occupied Transnistria, a breakaway region in Moldova. And we saw uh, after the brief conflict between Georgia and Russia back in 2008, uh, the Russians recognizing two pieces of Georgia, South Ossetia and Abkhazia as independent states. So, so this is right out of the Russian playbook. Uh, but again, my concern remains with regards to Ukraine is that the Kremlin's ambitions go beyond uh, just the two statelets that they recognized yesterday. And the Russians still have between 150,000 and 200,000 troops in Crimea and elsewhere on Ukraine's borders. Hannah, give us a bit more background on the Minsk agreement and, and what it was supposed to do when it was signed in 2015. When we speak about Minsk agreements, we mean the package of agreements signed in September 2014 and February 2015. Uh, de facto, uh, they've been signed after almost 16 hours of negotiations, very tough negotiations between France, Germany, Russia and Ukraine, when at the same time the big military assault of the Russian forces been happening in the eastern uh, regions of Ukraine. At that uh, battle, several hundred people been died and still a lot of uh, our people missing. So at that time, Russia been uh, um, pushing the full uh, pressure uh, that they could just imagine uh, to Ukrainian president to sign these agreements. Uh, they are, on the one hand, very simple. They start from the full ceasefire. They start from the possibility of the OEC to have access to the whole territory of Ukraine. Uh, they state uh, the withdrawal of the heavy weapons and the withdrawal of the foreign uh, uh, military, so meaning Russian. Uh, and they also talk about the return of the control over the Ukrainian-Russian border to the Ukrainian forces and uh, a possibility of the uh, additional uh, rights to the uh, separatist regions plus uh, elections that can be organized there. The problem is that there was no priority uh, among these uh, points of the agreement, meaning that nobody said what should be first. Uh, ceasefire and withdrawal were the return uh, to the border, uh, control over the border, or should it be the elections first? So from the very first day, Russians started manipulating uh, uh, with the uh, closest, with the uh, what discussed there and what agreed, and started to emphasize elections over security. Not speaking that ceasefire was uh, um, almost not implemented. If we follow the last eight years, they were just few days where the real ceasefire uh, could be observed. Now, Yuri, Germany announced this morning it will halt approval of a key natural gas pipeline into Russia, and that came on the heels of both the UK and US promising sanctions. But how much of this economic pressure matters to Russia? That's a great question. I should say uh, Benin Nordstrom is uh, moving in the right direction, but we should also remember that that gas pipeline should not have been there in the first place. The only reason why it's there is because the Russians wanted to strangle the Ukrainian economy. They wanted to bypass and lower the cost of war with Russia, uh, with Ukraine, I'm sorry. And, uh, you know, the fact that it's not going to operate for a while, it's, it's a move in the right direction, but it's still there, and we should keep in mind that it should not have been there. Also, the targeted sanctions are good. You know, they're moving since in the right direction. They help with the calculus <clears throat> to make sure that the Russian government does not want to escalate. But we should also understand that these targeted sanctions have more limited impact on, 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 on the decisions. You know, think if you have a bank and this bank cancels your credit card, is it going to change your behavior in a fundamental way? Probably not. But if you cut out of finance across all banks, this is much more serious. And so we should think about sectoral sanctions going forward. 
And finally, we should not forget that it's not just about punishing Russia. We should also understand that we should help the Ukrainian economy in all sorts of ways. For example, now many airlines stop flying to Ukraine because they're concerned about uh, security and safety. And we, we know that many investment projects are stalled now because people have questions whether this country is going to be around in the next months or so. And so Ukrainian economy is losing a lot of money. The government is losing a lot of money. It's a very difficult situation. It's very hard to raise money in private markets. Uh, so this is the time when the Ukrainian government should receive a lot of economic support from 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 the international community. Yuri, what about the timing of economic sanctions? How much do you think that matters? Ukraine's president uh, criticized the West for not implementing sanctions earlier. Well, you know, it's a great question where the sanctions should happen and when. <clears throat> you know, there is one argument saying that we should do it now uh, to raise the cost and make sure that people understand in the Russian government that this is serious. Oh, we should do this in response. You know, my concern is that the second strategy, when you say, well, we keep our power dry uh, in case we have real emergency, is not really holding water anymore. There is an emergency. It's, it's very clear. The Russian troops are on the U.S., uh, on the Ukrainian soil. And uh, this is time to punish. Yuri, briefly, because I know we have to let you go, how is your family in Ukraine responding to the ongoing situation there? You know, they're surprisingly calm. Everybody is a lot more prepared. Um, it was hard to imagine a war between Canada and the U.S. <laughs> the same was relevant for Ukraine and Russia. But now they're preparing. They know what to do. That's Yuri Gorodnichenko. He's a professor of economics at UC Berkeley. Yuri, thanks for joining us. Thank you. We're talking about the situation in Ukraine. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Remember to join future conversations, download our 1A Vox Pop app, and leave us a voicemail. Support for NPR and the following message come from BetterHelp, offering online counseling. BetterHelp therapist Hesu Joe knows that lockdown has been hard on us as humans. We as people are hardwired to connect with others, which is why this whole time is so difficult. The connection that happens between people can be very powerful and how healing it can be to have a healthy relationship with someone. To get matched with a counselor within 48 hours and save 10%, go to BetterHelp.com slash 1A. Over this last year and a half, the world's been through a lot. So on this season of the StoryCorps podcast, we'll hear stories reminding us that even when times are hard, we can still begin again. Listen to our new season wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get back to our conversation on Russia and Ukraine. Stephen, President Biden has imposed sanctions on the two separatist regions Russia's moved into, and he's expected to announce a further response later today. Last night, the United Nations held an emergency meeting on Russia, but it ended with no action taken. Here's U.S. Ambassador to the U.N., Linda Thomas-Greenfield. The United States will impose sanctions on Russia for this clear violation of international law and Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity. We can will and must stand united in our calls for Russia to withdraw its forces, return to the diplomatic table, and work toward peace. Stephen, walk us through the international response so far. Well, I think you've seen pretty much universal condemnation of the Russian move. Even Kazakhstan uh, has come out and said it would not recognize uh, the uh, two little statelets as independent entities. Uh, I think uh, the only country that sort of supported the Russians at this point may be Syria. 
So there's a lot of condemnation, but you are now beginning to see, though, the application of sanctions. The British have announced sanctions that will now include some major Russian banks. The European Union is also looking at sanctions on Russian banks. Plus, the Germans have now come out and said that the Nord Stream 2 pipeline from Russia to Germany, that they're putting that on hold. And I expect that Washington today will be announcing additional sanctions in addition to the sanctions that they announced yesterday. Well, in a statement, NATO Secretary General condemned Russia's move yesterday. But what has NATO done or will they do anything else? Yeah, NATO has been very clear uh, that it will not send troops into Ukraine to defend Ukraine against a Russian attack. Um, I mean, NATO is not prepared to go to war against Russia for Ukraine. Unfortunately, at this point for the Ukrainians, they're not covered by Article 5. But what NATO countries have been doing over the last three or four weeks is they have been building up their forces in the eastern flank countries, the Baltic states, Poland, Romania. So the United States has doubled the number of troops it has in Poland, going from about 4,000 now to more than 9,000. The Germans, the French, the British, the Dutch are all sending additional forces to the flank states. And what those forces are doing is, first of all, reassuring the countries uh, in the Baltic states and Poland, who are now much more nervous about how far Mr. Putin's ambitions may go. Remember, the Baltic states at one point were although the United States never formally recognized it, were once part of the Soviet Union. Um, But they're designed to assure those countries that NATO will be there, but those deployments are also designed to send a very strong message to Russia that NATO will defend NATO territory. Mr. Putin has made clear he doesn't like having these forces in the eastern flank region or their near Russian borders, Uh, but given Russian actions, uh, I think he's only going to see the number of those forces increase. Hannah, I know we have to let you go, but you're you're currently in Ukraine. What's going through your mind right now and what will you be looking for in the days ahead? Um, You know, the feelings here are that uh, people probably started to be afraid, but became very much determined, determined to defend what is ours, meaning our land, our future, our families. And uh, that is interesting that you can hear these moods from Odessa to Kharkiv to Kiev and Lviv. And when people are joking that maybe we need to evacuate to the West, to Lviv, uh, our friends in Lviv are saying, don't worry, we will come to help you defend Keep all this so you don't need to evacuate. And that shows this unity that despite political views, and unfortunately we have some politicians that have very close ties with the Russian Federation and support the Russian actions as well, but the uh, biggest majority, the, the real majority of people, they understand that East or West, that, is, that should be our choice. And uh, it is the slogan in Ukraine that appeared a few years ago just uh, to cover one building, but became as a real slogan of the country. Freedom is our religion. Freedom to choose with whom to be friends and where to go. Freedom to determine our future. And definitely uh, the Russian Federation with all these uh, Tsar type of the ruling without human rights and one crazy person in charge is not the model that Ukrainian people would like to follow. That's Hanna Shalest. She's the director of security programs at the Foreign Policy Council's Ukrainian Prison. Prism. She's also the editor-in-chief of UA Ukraine Analytica. Hanna, thank you for joining us. Thank you for invitation. Stephen, over the, the past several months, as we've been watching this evolve, President Biden has emphasized a, a diplomatic 
resolution, that, that that's what he was hoping for. And I'm, I'm wondering about your perspective uh, about the possibility of diplomatic relations, diplomatic resolutions when it comes to Russia. Now, I would say that the, the Biden administration, they framed their response in the right way. One hand saying there's a diplomatic course here, but there are also going to be a series of costs that the United States and the West will impose on Russia if there is further Russian military action against Ukraine. And back in December, the Russians proposed two draft agreements. There was a lot of stuff in there that was just non-starters. But the administration and NATO separately went back and said there are arms control measures, risk reduction measures, transparency measures, which we can talk about military activities that could make a genuine contribution to European security, including to Russian security. And the Russians would have none of that. They would say, you've, you've rejected our key demands, which are getting NATO to forswear enlargement forever and getting NATO to withdraw forces from the territories of the, those allies who joined the alliance after 1997. And my concern is that while the administration properly has said, we're prepared for a diplomatic track, it does not appear to me that the Russians are much interested in diplomacy. If you look over the crisis that's developed over the last two and a half months, at virtually every opportunity where there was a key junction, and we saw this yesterday, Vladimir Putin and the Kremlin chose to escalate the crisis. A week ago, uh, President Macron went to uh, Moscow. He met with Vladimir Putin for five hours. And at the end of the meeting, he says, I have agreement with Mr. Putin that there will be no escalation of the crisis. The next day, the Kremlin spokesman says, there was no such agreement. We did not agree to that. And then to add insult to injury, he says, besides, we were only talking to France here. France is a member of NATO, but France is not the leading member of NATO. That's another country. And then he says, you know, so it would be impossible for us to do this kind of deal with France. Mm. So I, I'm beginning to think that the prospects for diplomacy are pretty limited. And while it makes sense to keep that track open, I think we're going to need some indication from the Russians that they're serious about de-escalating this crisis and doing real diplomacy as opposed to the shred that we've seen over the last couple of months. And in just a sentence or two, Stephen, what's your biggest concern right now for the Ukrainian people? My biggest concern for the Ukrainian people is I fear that in the coming days they're going to be the victims of a, of a Russian war of aggression, a war that will be a war of choice because one man, Vladimir Putin, chose to send the Russian army further into Ukraine. The Ukrainians will resist, and I hope that the United States, the West, and the world stand with them. That's Stephen Pfeiffer. He was the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine from 1998 to 2000. He's now a William Perry Fellow at Stanford and a non-resident senior fellow at Brookings. Stephen, thank you for your time. Thank you. Today's producers were Paige Osborne and Chris Remington. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. We'll talk more soon. This is 1A.